0: All right. Good morning. Good morning. How are we? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, technical note: Where's Joel? Right Joel. Hey, there it is. Got it. All right. My time is there. Just <laughs> y'all want y'all want me to have time. I promise you that. Now, um, today we're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter three. If you would like a, a, a Bible made out of paper, um, there are people in the back. Uh, that will be happy to get you one if you just raise your hand. Uh, And these are good because they don't remind you to take the trash out when you get home. They don't tweet at you. They don't do anything except contain the words of God. So, if you need one, there they are. All right, we're in Mark chapter 3 today. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Mark 3 Verse 7, people of God, here is the word of God. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many. So that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat and when his family heard it they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind this is the word of god well we've been going through the uh, gospel of mark these last through these last however many weeks, I don't know how many it is, um, since January. And what we've been seeing is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, incarnate, showed up on this earth with some very good news on his lips. And the good news was this, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And this gospel, in this gospel, we're seeing what it means that the kingdom of God is at hand and how Jesus is inviting the world into it and how he's inviting us into the happiest of all possible lives here on this earth. And Jesus casts this invitation out wide and far and some people reject that invitation and others receive it. And, and that's what this gospel, or excuse me, that's what this book so far has been about. And that's what we see in our text this morning. We see that there are many possible wrong ways to hear and respond to this invitation, but that there's only one possible correct way to hear and respond to this invitation to the kingdom of God. And this is so important. Like, if our response to the call of Jesus isn't the right response, that that costs us everything. On the other hand, if our response is correct, it gains us everything. And let me just go ahead at the outset and, and answer potential objections. I, I, I can imagine somebody thinking, oh, okay, so I, I hear what you're saying. So, so you've got the right answer. Everybody else has the wrong answer. We should just listen to you. And that sounds very arrogant, I know. But the answer is no. That's not what I'm saying. The answer is Jesus holds The proper response jesus is going to teach us what the right answer is and we must learn it from him and that's what i aim to do in this sermon so in this story we have two entities i don't know if you notice them but there are two entities there's the crowd and there's disciples and that's basically my outline we're going to see um how the crowd can know Jesus, excuse me, the crowd cannot know Jesus, and only disciples can. Okay, so first point, why is it that the crowd cannot know Jesus? Second point, how is it that disciples do know Jesus? And then third, we're going to try to apply this best we can. So, first of all, why the crowd Cannot know Jesus. Well, let's go back to the text. The first reason that the crowd cannot know Jesus is because, now listen, the crowd wants Jesus' power, but not his person. The crowd wants Jesus' power, but not his person. We see this in the last part of verse 8 through 8 through verse 10. It says, When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him for, verse 10, he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So here we see that the crowd, the great mass of people came out to see Jesus because they hoped that they might get a miracle out of it. I mean, listen to what it says. Um, When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And what was it that he was doing? Well, that's what he says in verse 10. He had healed many. So under the powerful hand of Jesus, if you're familiar with the gospel stories, under the powerful hand of Jesus, blind men, men who had been blind from birth, all of a sudden could see again. Under the powerful hand of Jesus, a man who was, had legs that were wrecked and feet that were mangled, Jumped up and ran home under the powerful hand of Jesus. A woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years or 14 years, some, a lot of years, um, had it reversed immediately. And so when a person begins doing that kind of stuff, you can expect a crowd will gather. And did you notice what the crowd wanted out of Jesus? That they wanted his power. In fact, They wanted it so forcefully that it says Jesus was in danger of being crushed by them. So it was the hope of physical deliverance that motivated these crowds to gather from all the regions in the area and not the good news of the kingdom of God. It seems to me, I'm reading into this, but it seems to me that the crowd could have cared less who Jesus was just as long as they got the miracle they wanted. So the first reason the crowd can never know Jesus is because all that interests them is a transaction. You've got power. I've got suffering. This seems like an admirable arrangement. The crowd cares nothing about Jesus himself. In fact, if Jesus must be crushed for me to get the healing that I need so be it. And in so doing, they miss the occasion for knowing Jesus himself, who is their salvation. Okay, the second reason the crowd can't know Jesus is because the crowd is comfortable with confession, but not with contact. They're comfortable with confession, but not with contact. Now, we see this in verses 11 and 12, when a particular section of the crowd comes uh, to light. And that, uh, that particular part of the crowd was people who were possessed with unclean spirits. Let's look at verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now, <laughs> this is a very confusing set of events. Jesus encounters these demons. They obviously recognize him for who he is and the power that he has to cast them out and into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, et cetera, et cetera. And they fall down and they make a true confession. They say, you are the son of God. That's right. And they do it so that everybody can hear it. And then Jesus responds by saying, stop don't say that. Be silent. That's very confusing because it seems like what Jesus would want is for everybody to know that. Like that's the truth. But it says he he strictly ordered them not to make him known. He's serious about this. So what's going on? What's going on is that this particular section of the crowd is able to confess rightly, but has no interest in contact with Jesus himself. The demons react to Jesus in like abject fear. They, they don't want any relationship with him, and their fear, in their fear, they say right things about him, right? They, they, they confess rightly but they hate him nonetheless. The unclean spirits have no interest in confessing that Jesus is the son of God and then ordering their lives to live in line with that confession. It's truth without relationship. And it seems to me that, and I'm reflecting on this, that Jesus hears this confession coming out of these people's mouths who are possessed by the unclean spirits. And he looks around at the crowd and he sees that they can hear this confession, this, this particular form of the confession. And then maybe specifically he looks at his disciples and then he silences this confession precisely because he wants to make clear to all who are observing this that right doctrine cannot be a substitute for right relationship with himself. The third reason, that's the first two, the third reason the crowd can't know Jesus is because the crowd is embarrassed by Jesus, not electrified by him. They're embarrassed, but not electrified. In verses 20 to 21, we see that Jesus has gone home. The crowd comes again. And this time, a particular section of the crowd that Mark comments on is Jesus' family, says, then he went home, verse 20, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, uh, if you've got to read the commentaries on these verses, it's very, apparently very confusing, the syntax and the um, construction. Uh, there's a lot of dispute on like, what kind of comment this was. Did his family actually think he was insane, like, like out of his mind? Or did they just think, you know, he's sane, but he's gone too far. We need to take him. It doesn't matter. For our purposes, that doesn't matter. They heard what he was doing, and they were ashamed of him. That's what matters. They were embarrassed by him. They heard what he was doing, and their reaction was, we've got to stop him. Therefore, they were blind to what he actually was about and who he actually was. So those are the three reasons the crowd can't know Jesus. Number one, the crowd is only interested in what Jesus can do for them, not how they might know him. Secondly, the crowd is capable of true confession, but not true relationship. And thirdly, the crowd is often embarrassed by Jesus. And uh, before we move on to the next point, I I just, it, it seems right to me. I wonder if anyone is discovering in this very moment I'm a member of the crowd. I never knew. But, but hearing how the crowd thinks, how the crowd feels, that's me. It may be that you showed up here this morning uh, because you have a deep sense that because, because you're enduring all this, all the songs and the sermons and the announcements and the stories and the reading and the prayers, you know, you're, you're enduring all this and therefore now God and his power, Christ and his power is in your debt and therefore under your control because you need it for some reason. Um, it's not really Jesus that matters to you. It's your life. It's your health. It's your decisions that matter. Well, let me be blunt with you. I hope you appreciate it. Jesus is not interested in such a transaction. If you pull out the copies of the contract that you made with him, according to this arrangement, you will find that you have signed both copies. Now, Maybe that you grew up in church. Maybe you've always confessed proper doctrine. Of course, Jesus is the Son of God. We know this. We grew up saying this. You would call yourself a Christian because of the worldview you inhabit. It all holds together because it comes from the Bible. But do you long to know him? Is is Jesus Christ beautiful in your sight? Do you long to order every particle of your life under that confession that you know so well? Or maybe you're here this morning and you identify with Jesus' family. Uh, It's not not offensive to publicly affirm some of Jesus' teachings today. But if you were to bring all of Jesus' teaching out into the public square, it's embarrassing. Or at least that's what you would say. It's, It's embarrassing. Better to leave to, to take the ones like, love your neighbor as yourself, love, love. It, better to take those, embrace them, say, yes, the teaching of Jesus is good and it's right. But to take some of them that are embarrassing for us today, just f- set them aside. Better ignored, better forgotten. Because he's embarrassing. See, each of these manners of life, each of these postures of the heart, while altogether understandable, I mean that are the very thing that will keep a person from truly knowing Jesus. And if we don't know Jesus, we have no access to his kingdom. It is by him that we enter his kingdom, and it is by him that we are excluded from it. There is no other access point to his kingdom. But if you find yourself identifying with the crowd this morning, well, then I have very good news for you. And and I'm about to tell it to you. So that brings us to the second point. Why is it that only disciples can know Jesus? All right, we talked about why is it that the crowd cannot know Jesus? How is it and why can disciples know Jesus? Well, Mark is very clear on the distinction here between the crowd and Jesus' disciples. And the message is unmistakable. The crowd cannot know Jesus, only disciples can. Now, why is that? Well, let's look at verse 13. He says, And he went up on the mountain, and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Disciples, listen, disciples are the objects of Christ's desire. And therefore, he calls them out of the crowd. You, the interesting thing, we see Jesus' relationship to the crowd. We actually can see Jesus separating himself from the crowd. Do you remember? It's just a, almost a parenthetical remark. He says, hey, make sure, he says to his disciples, make sure that you've got a boat for me so that I can get out on the water, lest the crowd crush me. He is separating himself from the crowd. But then he looks at his disciples, he goes up onto the mountain, he says, I want you to come to me. I want you to be with me. So, the first reason that only disciples can know Jesus is because Jesus desires to make himself known to them. Okay, how, how do disciples know Jesus? Well that comes to us in the first half of verse 14. It says, and he appointed the 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, with Jesus. These men were to walk with Jesus, eat with Jesus, Sail the seas with Jesus, sleep with Jesus, have dialogue with Jesus, observe Jesus' ministry, and then work with Jesus. And then remember, um, that that this is not how the crowd interacts with Jesus, as we see in verse 8. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, when they heard, they came to him. Like, that's when they came to him, once they heard what he was doing. And then again in verse 20, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again. So the crowd comes and goes, according to their fancy. They gather to crush him with their expectations when they believe that he can give them something that they can't get by themselves, and therefore they can never know Jesus as he is. But disciples are with Jesus. And by the way, this has always been the case. If you go back to the first cover of the Bible you start reading the whole thing, this has always been the case throughout redemptive history. God is always concerned to be with his people. Don't you remember that God led his people through the wilderness with a cloud of fire, or excuse me, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire so that he might be with them. You remember when God commanded Solomon to build a temple at the center of which was the most holy place in which the presence of God dwelt here on the earth so that he might be with his people. Don't you remember in Isaiah when God tells his people in the midst of their suffering, when you go through the waters, when you pass through the fire, I will be with you. And when the angel comes to Joseph and says to Joseph, when Mary has her baby, I have a name for him, Emmanuel, God with us. God has always been concerned to be with us. And so when Jesus called 12 men out of the crowd and said, you come, be with me, it's an astonishing moment. So how is it that the disciples know Jesus? They're with him. They can know him because he desires that they should know him. How is it that they know him? They're with him. And then this text also tells us for what purpose Jesus calls those whom he desires. And, and this comes to us at the end of verse 14 and verse 15. It says, he does all this so that he might send them out to preach, verse 15, and have authority to cast out demons. Christ came to announce that the kingdom of God had broken into this world. And the crowd has no way to enter God's kingdom because they care nothing about Jesus himself, the king. But Jesus came to persuade the crowd with his preaching, repent and believe the gospel. And this is a matter of life and death. To enter the kingdom of God by means of believing the gospel is to forever Behold the fair beauty of the Lord. But on the other hand, to reject the gospel, to remain a member of the crowd and keep the kingdom of God at a safe distance means to suffer in the outer darkness. This mission of preaching the good news of the kingdom was dead serious. And Jesus entrusted this mission to those who were with him. Essentially, Jesus is saying that personal involvement with and training by the master is essential to the carrying out of his mission. The purpose of being with Jesus is to shoulder the burden of Jesus's ministry. There are are an awful lot of people who exist in the crowd who cannot fathom what hope means who instinctively know that God's judgment belongs to them and rests upon them. And disciples have good news for these people. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Come be with Jesus. Now, <clears throat> all of that seems, up to this point, very tidy, very clean. You've got the crowd over here, you've got disciples over here, and a nice line right down the middle, and everything's tidy. But this text would would teach that kind of separation if it weren't for one name in this list of 12. At the very end of this list, in verse 19, it says, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And that is astonishing. Judas Iscariot was chosen by Jesus. He walked with Jesus for three and a half years. But even with that level of witness, if I could say that word, and, and and trample on the nerves of every English teacher in the room. If I could, with that level of witness, one night, Judas led a band of soldiers, and armed men, into a place where he knew Jesus would be, and he pressed his lips to Jesus' cheek, and betrayed him, and sent him to his death. One of the 12, and with that one act, With that one, it's not, here's the thing, it's not just one of the 12. With that act, the other 11 fled and left Jesus to himself. Now, to be fair, Peter lasted a few more hours than the rest of them, but all it took was a little girl saying, hey, aren't you one of them? And he freaked out and he fled, and he denied Jesus. At the first sign of trouble, they flee. And I have to... if all of us are honest, all of us who are disciples of Jesus, if, if we're honest, that is the experience of every one of Christ's disciples from that day until today. It's true that Christ desires his disciples. He calls them to himself. He pours out his life in their company. The disciples are recipients of more goodness, abundance, than Anybody in the history of the world has ever been, and yet at the first blip, they flee. And you would think, you would think that would prove something very decisive. They were never disciples to begin with. They they were just faking it. They were always members of the crowd. They might have been called out, chosen, chosen been with Jesus for three and a half years, but they never really renounced their membership of the crowd. They were never counted among Jesus' true disciples. Jesus, in light of all of this, ought to go find some others and leave these men to the crowd where they belong. But he didn't. He did not do that. Jesus submitted to his betrayal. When the men grabbed his arms to bind him with chains, they didn't find him. Resistant and rigid, they found him pliable and willing to bend to their will. When they laid his body upon the wood so that they might pierce him with spikes, he didn't struggle, but like a sheep led to the slaughter, he was silent and submissive. And as the noonday sky grew black, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, he was abandoned. He found in that moment that the Father was no longer with him. The first time of his life. Now don't miss this. It was actually Christ's disciples who earned that fate. It was the ones who abandoned him. The ones who betrayed him. They deserved that fate. Christ had done them an extraordinary kindness by calling these men out of the crowd, giving himself to them. He carried them for years, and in the one moment where he truly needed their help, they ran. What do those disciples deserve? Those disciples deserve to see Jesus wipe the dust off of his feet and say, I'm done with you. But that is not What he does, he takes up their judgment, he inhabits their abandonment that they deserve and which they can never bear. And by the atoning blood that poured out of his wounds, he was made to die in their place. Why? So that three days later, when he was resurrected, he called his disciples back up onto a mountain, and he said, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. No matter if you are with me or whether you are fleeing, I am with you and no one can ever snatch you out of my hand. Now, how do we apply this? Let's, let's spend our last few minutes there. What, what, what do we make of this for us today, sitting in this room? I think the idea of application, the main idea of application here is to figure out what does it mean for us? you people and me, to be with Jesus today. I mean, it's very obvious what it meant for the 12 to be with Jesus. They walked with him, they sailed with him, they ate with him, they laughed with him, they told you, like, that's what it meant to be with him. But he is no longer present with us in that manner. So how is it that we are to be with Jesus? Now, that's a very big question. It deserves a much uh, more thorough treatment than I'm about to give it, but we're gonna do what we can. So if you look at the New Testament, especially the letters of Paul, and you ask it, what does it mean to be with Jesus after he is no longer physically present with us? You ask, well, um, you find that most of the language has to do with reckoning. Here's what I mean. Um, Let me just give you a quick sample. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Ephesians 2.5. Made alive with Christ. Christ, Ephesians 3.11, if you have been raised with Christ, Colossians 3.3, your life is now hidden with Christ. So the first thing it means for us to be with Christ today is to possess a certain standing in the courts of heaven. Though I wasn't crucified, Jesus was. And because of my belief in that, that, that crucifixion is reckoned to me. I was crucified with Christ, I am reckoned alive. I am reckoned not guilty because of that. So that's one major thing it means for us to be with Christ. But I don't think that's what Christ meant. It's true. But I don't think that's what Christ meant when he stood on that mountain and said to his disciples, I will be with you to the very end of the age. In that sense, withness is not a reckoning, not a mere reckoning. It's real reckoning presence, to be with Christ. I mean, recall that Jesus taught his disciples that it was better, if you remember the Gospel of John, it's better, he says, that I depart. Because if I don't leave, then the Holy Spirit can't come. It's, the arrangement is better for you if I am not physically present, but rather the Holy Spirit has come and has taken up residence within you, inside. And if we take him at his word, then to have his very presence dwelling within us is a better situation than to have him physically present with us. So mainly what it means to be with Christ today, for those of us who can't see him, is to know and believe that he resides within us by the Holy Spirit. And the power, by the power of the Spirit, we're able to walk in his ways. By the power of the Spirit, we're able to pray and to know that we are reckoned righteous. The Spirit himself groans within us when we don't have the words in the midst of our suffering to speak to God. The Spirit is carrying us. He is leading us on. That's what it means to be with Christ. In this way, Christ is with us always, even to the end of the age. But if you're anything like me, um, like, okay, theologically, yes. Affirmed. I, yes, it is better that Christ has left so that his spirit may dwell within me. And unless he is a liar, that is the better way to go. But if you're anything like me, I actually have to fight against myself to truly believe that. Um, I mean, yes, no doubt. We all believe, those of us who are Christians, we all believe that it is magnificent to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. That is wonderful. But to see Christ, like to feel his embrace, to know the timbre of his voice, that would fulfill all my longings in a way that the spirit within me cannot. And no amount of in, I've found, can satisfy my longing to be with. No amount of in can satisfy my longing to be with. But here's the good news, here's the good news. It's true that our condition now with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is better than the 12 had it while Jesus was physically present with them. It it is better. It is better to have Christ dwelling within than merely without. But that's not the end of the story. Do you remember what Paul says? Okay, I just came across this and it blew my mind because I never saw it in this light before. Do you remember what Paul says to the Philippians in chapter one, verse 23? He says, he's talking about how he would love, he would love to depart and be with Christ, but he knows it's better that he remain here for their sakes. But he says, it is far, oh, I long to depart and be with Christ for that is far better I never saw that before. I long to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And if there was ever a person who told us about the magnificent glories of what it meant to be in Christ and to have Christ in us, it was the Apostle Paul. And he says, no, far better to go and be with Christ. <sighs> There's a day coming. When not only will Christ be in us, he will be with us. We will see him, walk with him, eat with him, laugh with him. And our greatest longings in that day will have been fulfilled. So, today... In in our stage of redemptive history, being with Jesus is like hearing the roar of a waterfall in the distance. But one day we will be plunged into that pool. And he will be before and behind and within and in front and all around. And it will be a magnificent day. Now, if you're here this morning and you found yourself identifying with the crowd found yourself realizing that you actually have no use for Jesus except for your own agenda. You're finding even now you're feeling yourself guilty, separated, estranged from him. The good news is this. He is calling you out of the crowd. Those feelings that you're having right now, let me interpret them for you. He desires that you be with him. Those feelings are not the sign that he is casting you away, but that he is drawing you near. He is up on the mountain and saying, come and be with me. Repent and believe the gospel. Christ died for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you would only believe that, he would take up residence within you and give you new life. And one day, he will return for you and bring you into his kingdom. So believe. Where else will you go? Where else will you go? Every week we come to this table. This is a magnificent moment. Um, we have in this table a meal that is for disciples, not for the crowd. The crowd will come to this table because they hope it's magical right? That they, they hope to ingest the bread and the cup, and maybe that will heal them. Maybe that will give them the wisdom they need to make this decision or that decision. And if that's you, please note, this table is not for you because it's not a magic trick. This table is for disciples who want to be with Jesus, when you ingest this bread in this cup, it's a reminder that Christ dwells within you. But it is a further reminder that one day you also will dwell with him in his everlasting kingdom. And that he desired you and desires you even now. And has called you out of the crowd to belong to him. And so when you ingest this bread, it is meant to awaken your hope that not only one day will he be in you, but he will also be with you. And it is this meal that will give you strength to wait for that day. So, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what else do we have besides you? We, we have nothing. We see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ as he presents himself to us in these scriptures. We, we see it. But if you don't awaken us by the power of your spirit, we have, we have no hope. So I pray for all of us, Father. Uh, you, you have a way of speaking to each one of us in ways that only we know that you're speaking to us, Um, ways that you're leading us that you're not leading anybody else. So will you grant us ears to hear? Will you grant us belief? Will you grant us steadfastness? For those whose legs are about to buckle under the weight of their suffering, I pray that you would grant them hope in a real sense of your presence. You know, Father, if only we knew your presence, if only we truly knew it, We can endure an awful lot so will you grant us that and we love you and we pray as you as you meet us as our lord jesus meets us here at this table that you give us courage hope and abundance we love you and pray this in the name of jesus and all god's people said amen if you belong to jesus this meal is for you and you are most welcome